crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author. And in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Jim Humphreys wasn't worried at first when he couldn't spot his girlfriend in the classroom for the big test. I mean, it was a big classroom after all, and the big test was being taken by hundreds of students. He was sure he just hadn't been able to spot her in the crowd. But once the test was over, he still couldn't find her. This time, he'd even stood up to look, and he was six foot seven, so that altitude offered a pretty good vantage point. He made a phone call to her apartment, got no answer, Then a friend asked if he'd seen Jane. Still, it wasn't a worry yet as much as a nuisance. Jane Britton was 23, and while she was incredibly smart and beyond driven, she also had a flair for the dramatic now and then, and the flair for the occasional flaky moment. There were plenty of reasons she might not have made it to the big test. It could simply have been that she overslept. Jim plodded through Harvard's campus to reach Jane's rundown apartment on University Road. He entered the unlocked vestibule. The tenants had been pestering for a lock, but the landlords were cheap. And he bounded up to the fourth floor where Jane lived in a glorified studio. Even though they were dating and he saw her pretty frequently, he still knocked. That's just how he was raised. The knock grabbed the attention of Jane's neighbors, a married couple named Don and Jill Mitchell, who'd been waiting anxiously for Jane to come home so they could pepper her with questions about the much-anticipated quiz. But Jane didn't answer the door. Jim pushed it open and spotted her, half-naked on the bed. Face down on the mattress, she looked passed out. He beckoned to Jill to check on her. It was 1969, and even though they had been intimate, They were careful to follow a few of society's rules, so he wasn't just going to rush in there while she was nude and unconscious. Jill walked in, got one look, and covered her mouth as she ran out. Jane Britton hadn't slept through her test. She'd been murdered. And hers would be one of the country's most enduring whodunits that would eventually get an answer, thanks to journalists who refused to let it go. The tale of Jane Britton immediately made headlines nationwide, but especially in New England. She was young, pretty, feisty, and most importantly, when it came to news value, well-off and well-connected. Her father was administrative vice president of Radcliffe College, where Jane had gotten her undergraduate degree. Jane had been such a good student that she'd been accepted into Harvard's doctoral program straight after Radcliffe. Her passion was archaeology, and the test she was supposed to take on January 7th, 1969, was a big deal. And the test is this major landmark in grad students' career. That was Becky Cooper, author of a book on Jane's case called We Keep the Dead Close. 
The test Jane was to take that morning was day one of a three-day ordeal that would determine if she was allowed to stay and keep working toward her doctorate, or if she'd suffer the humiliation of getting booted from the program and forced to get a terminal degree instead, like a master's, like a chump. The headlines those first days were as straightforward as they were tragic. Harvard co-ed brutally slain. Michael Widmer was then a cub reporter working his second day for the wire service, United Press International, when he was sent to the scene. Randomness of having somebody at that young age suddenly murdered just uh, hit me, hit me uh, deeply. In many newspapers nationwide, an Associated Press photo ran alongside the story of Jane's death. The picture showed an officer and two medics hauling Jane's covered body from her building to an ambulance. The crime scene inside that building was horrific. Jane is lying face down on her bed, covered with these fur blankets. Jane had been violently bludgeoned to death. Investigators weren't sure of the murder weapon yet, but they knew it likely had one sharp pointy end and one flatter one because Jane's body bore both types of injuries. Something blunt and heavy had smashed her skull, but something thin had been used to stab her through the chest. It was possible the killer had used more than one weapon, but trouble was, the cops couldn't find any weapon at the scene, much less proof that there were two. They weren't sure either whether Jane had been raped or if she'd simply had consensual sex near the time of her attack. What they did know was that the way the killer treated her body seemed incredibly personal. She wasn't just killed and left on the floor. She was laid on her bed, almost posed, with those blankets layered on top of the upper half of her body. Her lower half was bare. Because Jane had been an archaeologist, she had some strange and macabre items in her apartment. A headstone, for example. Usually it was kept near the table where she ate her meals, but when her body was discovered, it seemed to have been moved, as though to mark her grave. But the most bizarre part of this scene was... Red powder was scattered around the room. The splash of red powder investigators found wasn't just on the bed, but it crept up the wall. It looked as though somebody had very purposefully made a circular shape with the stuff. Investigators dusted some into an evidence bag and continued processing the scene. Jane's friends were heartbroken. But more than that, they were utterly confused. Sure, Jane was something of a free spirit. I mean, she would quickly tell you if you pissed her off. But at the same time, she didn't have any enemies. Her bluntness was endearing more than it was offensive. She was just a forward, modern woman. She commanded respect. She wanted a career. And she liked to yell a four-letter word or three when she got hurt or frustrated. And some guys were scared of her, but they liked her, too especially since this was 1969 and she was a free love kind of woman. Jane might have been different than other girls, but no one hated her for it. Jane wasn't technically from Cambridge, Massachusetts. That's where Harvard is. But her hometown wasn't far. Needham was a different Boston suburb, just 15 miles southwest of Cambridge. Her father was Joseph Boyd Britton, who went by the more mysterious-sounding Jay Boyd. He was born in St. Louis and started his career in industrial chemistry. 
His shift to Radcliffe was one of those post-retirement second-act deals. He started there in 1965, two years after his daughter Jane had started undergrad there. Jane's mom, Ruth, was Jay Boyd's second wife. And unlike a lot of women at the time, she had been steeped in academia her whole adult life. She got her PhD from the University of Wisconsin in 1938 and did graduate work at the University of Brussels, according to her obituary. Over her career, she taught medieval history at the university level, was a professor of humanities at Scripps College, and was a fellow of the Radcliffe Institute. All this is to say, Jane was raised to prize academics, so it surprised no one when she graduated Radcliffe Magna Cum Laude with a degree in anthropology. Back then, Harvard's undergraduate program was for men only. Radcliffe was an offshoot created by educators wanting to give women scholars access to the Harvard faculty. Jane, called Janie by her close friends, was intelligent and witty. According to a New York Times story soon after her death, quote, Miss Britton emerges as a bright, sophisticated, and purposeful student with an expansive, light style, armed with enormous self-confidence and a sardonic wit, often tempered with literary illusions, end quote. Her friend Ingrid Kirsch told reporters, the police have a massive material, and I think it will all lead to the conclusion that no one would want to kill Janie. Jane was a challenging mix of tough and vulnerable. She was raised in a family that could afford horseback lessons and high-priced colleges, but she wasn't pretentious or stuffy. Kirsch said she had a kind of insight into people that was disconcerting. She could stop a conversation by coming out with a single sentence. You could describe her as crusty. Becky Cooper again. One of my favorite quotes of hers is in a letter where she's writing to her parents and she's talking about her her boyfriend, Jim Humphreys. And she says, well, you know, can't say I mind the idea of getting married. But then again, I, I can't say I mind contemplating the idea of pizza when I get home. She was the next wave of woman living in a world that hadn't quite caught up with her. To get a glimpse of the culture at the time, here's a woman who had enrolled in Radcliffe in 1964. We had Sherry's on Tuesday night. We had parietal hours on Sundays for one hour. You could have boys in the room. Uh, Four feet on the floor and the door opened ajar. That was the rule. The summer before her death, Jane had taken one of the most important trips of her life. Joining an archaeological dig at the site of an ancient village in southeastern Iran. She'd gone with a few fellow students and Harvard professor Clifford C. Lamberg-Karlovsky, the project leader. At the time, Lamberg-Karlovsky had talked up the site, which was really a mound measuring 600 feet wide and 65 feet high, as the lost citadel of Carmania, an ancient city that Alexander the Great conquered in 325 B.C., The professor said he was sure it was Carmania because of the artifacts he and his students found there, particularly elephant teeth. As the Crimson, Harvard student newspaper wrote, elephants are uncommon to Persia, but were regularly used by Alexander for military transportation. It turned out this wasn't Carmania after all, but it was still a big deal. What the students unearthed at that site was thousands of years old, remnants of an ancient Neolithic civilization. The summer dig had been difficult. 
It was hot and sweaty and exhausting. Tempers grew short. Friendships frayed. And none of this was unusual given the circumstances. But after Jane's murdered body was found six months after the dig, rumors started to fly suggesting that some of the headbutting from the summer eventually led to murder. Those rumors were bolstered by the bizarre crime scene. Aside from the red ochre... The killer had apparently burned her body with cigarettes um, in a kind of ritualistic fashion. And that the killer had placed three necklaces on her body as in a kind of perfect recreation of the burial that they had found together that summer in Iran. Here's what investigators understood about Jane's last night alive. Jane went to dinner with some of her Harvard classmates at the Acropolis restaurant in Cambridge. She then stopped at home to change clothes before going ice skating with her then boyfriend on Cambridge Common. After ice skating, they went to Charlie's Pub, located very close to Jane's apartment, had a beer before returning to Jane's apartment around 10.30 that evening. Boyfriend stayed at Jane's house for about an hour or so. He then left. Jane went across the hall to visit with her neighbors. Despite the big test the next morning, Jane wasn't quite ready to turn in, so she had a glass of sherry with her neighbors, the Mitchells. She supposedly seemed cheerful, completely normal, aside from maybe some test jitters. She went back to her own apartment around 12.30 a.m. If she screamed while being attacked, no one heard it. Toxicology showed that Jane had no alcohol in her bloodstream, but she had a level of 0.08 in her stomach. That indicated that the alcohol she had ingested both at Charlie's and at the neighbor's had not yet metabolized and entered her bloodstream, indicating that she was killed sometime relatively shortly after she went back to her apartment. Police, of course, looked for the usual clues and found a few, like that the window to Jane's apartment was open to the outside, not completely normal for early January in Massachusetts, Also, a neighbor said that sometime that night, she thought she heard noise on the building's fire escape. A different neighbor described someone running in the street near the building around 1.30 a.m. The witness didn't get a good look at the runner, but thought it was a man around six feet tall and 170 pounds. That this wasn't the apartment building's first murder confused things. The apartment had had a history of violent attacks. It was a run-down building in serious need of renovations. Harvard owned it, but refused to do any upkeep because the tenants had balked at a proposed rent increase. Jane paid $75 a month to live there. Five years earlier in that same building, a different 23-year-old woman named Beverly Sammons had been stabbed to death. Eventually, that murderer would generally be clumped with 13 killings in eastern Massachusetts blamed on the Boston Strangler, Albert DeSalvo. But now that it had happened again, people couldn't help but wonder, could whoever killed Beverly have repeated the pattern with Jane? Police said straight away they didn't know. There were no suspects. They had no motive. And pretty soon, they had no comment either. The police chief insisted on a media blackout in hopes of keeping the story controlled. That can backfire, though. Reporters who aren't given facts sometimes feel free to run with conjecture. The New York Daily News dug deep enough into Jane's background that they found she'd had an abortion a few months before her death. 
it had nothing to do with her death. The ex-boyfriend, who would have been the baby's father, had a solid alibi. But reporters didn't know that, and the public was hungry for the story. And Jane's once private operation became public knowledge. Jane's own parents hadn't known about the pregnancy until the press reported it. Not everyone was thrilled with that type of coverage. I found an angry letter to the editor chastising the Daily News for writing about the abortion, which was illegal at the time. It would become legal before the 24th week of pregnancy the next year in 1970. Jerry Lama wrote, I've come to the conclusion that you news hounds, parentheses dogs, would hang your own mother for a story. Did you have to mention that the co-ed killed in Cambridge, Mass? Jane Britton had had an abortion? The girl has been murdered, so why inflict shame on her parents? That early reporting might have played into the family's reluctance to fight for answers when Jane's case started going cold. By kicking up these questions about who his daughter was, the way that people were asking the question seemed to blame her for what befell her. And, and you know, at times it seemed like not only was his daughter dead, but then her reputation was going to be besmirched in, in the kind of unearthing of what happened. As Jane's family grappled with their loss and police sifted through clues, the rest of Harvard began forming theories. And none of the theories had anything to do with Jane's building or her abortion. Instead, they focused on the mysterious red powder found at the crime scene. What could it mean? It seemed everyone had a theory. That the body of Jane Britton was discovered to have been dusted by red ochre was chilling to the archaeologists who knew her. Red ochre had for centuries been used in burial rites by countless civilizations. This red powder, which many people believe to be red ochre, this kind of iron oxide that is spread over many, many human burials. This is from Neptune Lagoon's YouTube channel. A weird sounding source, I know, but the info checks out. Here's one of those red ochre burials. Strangely, it's always a burial like this. You'll see them where they're on their left. They have red ochre symbolically around them, and they're facing to the east. And this is always thought to symbolize a, a rebirth of the person facing the east, the womb, and the sun rises the next day. And you see this red ochre tainting on many, many burials. And it seems to pass on and on and on. Jane's friends were certain that the red ochre at the scene meant something. Something big. Your average Joe doesn't know the role of the powder in ancient cultures. To them, that meant the pool of possible suspects was whittled down fast. It must be someone Jane knew through Harvard, they figured. Three main suspects topped the list. Two were Harvard professors. The third was a former Harvard student who would be suspected in a different young female archaeologist's death a few years later. Author Becky Cooper was a Harvard student decades after Jane's death. One day in 2009, the rumors finally reached her. And he says, well, if you want to hear a really crazy Harvard story, and proceeds to tell me about the murder of this woman, whose name he didn't know. But in his version of the story... The person who had killed her was her advisor. And then I later learned that that advisor was still on faculty. And I just couldn't, I couldn't let it be something that we were willing to whisper about. I felt like I had to be the one to take the rumor seriously. So here were the suspects. 
First, there was Jane's advisor and the organizer of her dig in Iran, Professor Lambert Karlovsky. When Jane started at Harvard, he was a young professor who was very handsome. People called him behind his back Count Dracula, both because of his name and also because of kind of rumored heir of European aristocracy. And, you know, people have said over the, over the course of my interviewing them that he was the kind of person not to let a few facts stand in the way of a good story. That's a nice way of calling someone a liar. People talk about him stalking the halls of the Peabody in, in a cape and whether or not that's true. It's sort of aligned so closely to the kind of larger-than-life reputation of this professor. When Cooper says Peabody there, she's referring to Harvard's Peabody Museum. The rumor had been that he and Jane had an affair and that Jane had threatened to talk. Lambert Karlovsky decided to eliminate this annoyance by killing her. It just so happened that the very day Jane's body was found, the wheels were put in motion at Harvard for Lambert Karlovsky to be tenured. He was the most talked about suspect. Many filtering through Harvard over the years seemed to accept it as fact that this guy had killed a woman, a student, and gotten away with it. That's the rumor that Cooper heard, the one that started her decade-long quest to find Jane's killer. Even though she had already graduated, Cooper went so far as to return to campus to audit one of the professor's classes just to get a sense of whether this guy really could be a murderer. And he said during one of the classes describing the people of Ain Malaha um, that they buried the dead under the floorboards of their house. And he looked at everyone and said they kept the dead close. And I kind of circled it in my notebook. The professor was an imposing, mysterious figure on campus. At the time of Jane's death, he was handsome in a dark and roguish kind of way. He was described as pompous as hell, and while there was nothing substantiating rumors of an affair between Jane and him, there was reason to think their relationship was less than friendly. For starters, he had failed Jane a year earlier on the very test she was slated to retake the day she died. He had warned her that if she didn't pass this time, her career would be in trouble. They had also butted heads on that Iran dig, in part because Lambert Karlovsky's wife joined the group partway through. I know what you're thinking, allegations of an affair, but it wasn't that kind of tension. The problem Jane apparently had with the missus was that she seemed to play favorites when it came to doling out the rationed food and routinely chastised the women on the trip if they swore. Scandal. The friction Jane had with a wife was said to spill over into friction with Lambert Karlovsky. For Cooper, the professor was considered mercurial, brilliant, hot-tempered, exploitative, paranoid. You know how sometimes a murder suspect is named and his friends are floored because they just can't see that in him at all? Well, Lambert Karlovsky really wasn't that guy. He was the type whose students would learn of such accusations and say, You know, I always knew there was something fishy about him, but there was no physical evidence tying him to Jane's apartment the night she died. The more I looked into the story, the less I believed that he was the murderer. In fact, I'm convinced that he's not. And so the question for me kind of forked and and became even more interesting, which was, all right, well, if, if Carl didn't do it, then who did? And also, why is this the person on whom history has decided to pin it? So Cooper turned her attention to the second potential suspect, who was a different professor named Lee Parsons. Like Lambert Karlovsky, he was well-educated and accomplished. 
In the spring of 69, he had led an expedition to Guatemala where his team excavated four-foot-tall human effigies carved in stone. But Parsons had been kind of an odd duck, too. And Jane, one night, had hung out with him at his apartment with her neighbors, the Mitchells. Parsons had gotten visibly drunk, managing to burn a hole into his own shag carpet, which the Mitchells took as a sign it was time to head home. But Jane didn't come home with them. She said she wanted to stay behind. Later, after she walked herself home, she seemed a little uneasy about the encounter. The Mitchells always wondered if something upsetting had happened after they left. All they knew is that Jane refused to talk about it. The third suspect was the fellow archaeology student. His name was Richard Michael Gramley. When I was uh, nine years old, I went with my great uncle and saw an arrowhead found, which captivated me. Uh, But then I found my own about a year later, and I was hooked. That's an interview with Gramley I found online. Now, Gramley's name hadn't initially been floated as someone to investigate in Jane's death. Rather, he'd been an aside, a footnote at most. He had known Jane, but so did lots of people. Then, in 1976, Gramley went on an expedition in a remote part of Labrador, Canada. There were two people on that expedition, but only one of them ever came home. The other was a young woman named Anne Abraham. Gramley said she'd been climbing some tricky terrain when he went another direction in search of a shortcut. When he came back, he said Anne was gone. What made Anne's disappearance suspicious was that after she disappeared, Gramley didn't use his communication setup to call it in for 20 long hours. Anne's family suspected Gramley immediately. That, in turn, caught the attention of some of Gramley's ex-love interests, one of whom said the dude straight-up stalked her after she broke up with him. So sure was she that Gramley was capable of murder that the woman started to keep records on him, looking to see if any unsolved murders happened in places he had been. While writing her book, Cooper seemed to flip back and forth, favoring each of these three suspects at one point or another. For a while, too, she wondered about Jim Humphreys, the boyfriend who had found Jane's body. After all, Jane's letters and journal entries made it clear that they'd become incredibly close during the trip to Iran. But as Jane's feelings grew, Jim pulled away. Could it be that Jane pushed him too hard for a relationship and he snapped? Without more information, Cooper felt like she was just spinning her wheels. So she filed freedom of information requests to see the police file compiled about Jane's case. For those who don't know Sunshine Laws, they vary state by state, but generally speaking, records are supposed to largely default to being open to the public so long as they don't fall under an exemption. A common exemption is active police investigations. The idea being that authorities don't want to hand over information that might screw up a case. Fair enough. But when a case is 20, 30, 40 years old, well, generally, those ain't active anymore. So Cooper asked to see the files, but police denied the request, citing the active investigation, even though no one had been working on the case for decades. Cooper wasn't the only journalist trying to get those records. So was a retired reporter named Michael Widmer, himself a Harvard grad. He's the one who had been one of the first on the scene all those years ago. 
As he tells it, the case was pivotal for him in part because he had just gotten his first post-college reporting job. As Widmer explains to a TV reporter, It was a formative experience for me. I'm spending several years on the Harvard campus in graduate school. I completed the, the degree. Then I'm hired by UPI, day two, back in Cambridge, back in Harvard, and there's a murder of a Harvard graduate student. So it really has always been part of me. Always wanted to go back, mainly because it's unsolved. What happened? Even after he'd retired, Widmer couldn't shake the case. It didn't make sense to him that the details would be so shrouded in secrecy all these years later. I think that if there's publicity on the case, that will actually help rather than hinder. But prosecutors thought otherwise. This is from a roundtable debate-style news program that pitted Widmer against Middlesex District Attorney Marion Ryan, whose office refused him the records. Why aren't more eyes a better thing? As Mike Widmer said a minute ago, you still are the only one with official authority. Do your job, but with the eyes of smart people like him and him and Cooper, why not do it that way? Because one of the things that's very important, and to talk about one of those cases, you know, 15-year-old John McCabe disappeared, didn't come home one night, nine months after Jane Britton was murdered. His family couldn't find him. He was found the next day, hogtied uh-huh. and dead in a field. Took us 42 years to bring that case to resolution. And I bring that up because one of the things that was critical at that point, when we ultimately got some information that led us down a path to identifying a suspect, we were able to use information that had been held back. That was contained in those reports. It does two things. Make sure it can, it, it can, this is the real deal. It confirms it, and it also weeds out, really importantly, uh-huh. and I think something you'd be really interested in, it weeds out somebody, and we have this more often than we'd like to think, somebody who gives us a false confession. Because we had a very well-publicized case Understood. recently with a confession where they, they'd gotten that information from somewhere else. But while Widmer and Cooper were being stonewalled by the prosecutor, Their efforts to get access to the records still, ultimately, helped solve the case. After journalists doggedly fought for the police file in Jane Britton's long, frigid murder case, it seems the district attorney realized she'd have to make good on refusing the records on grounds it was an active investigation. So she made it active again. When Jane was killed, it was believed she might have been raped. There was semen recovered anyway, and her boyfriend, Jim Humphreys, said that the two of them hadn't had sex in the days before her death. If that were true, it seemed like the biological matter collected at the scene could be hugely important. Over the years, bits of this matter had been tested as DNA analysis slowly improved. Sometime in the 1980s, enough of a profile was pulled to compare it with known offenders, but there were no matches. And the same thing happened in the 2000s. Then a geneticist did a test for a Y chromosome. The deal with that is that only men have Y chromosomes and every man has the same Y chromosome as his father. After Widmer and Cooper filed a suit against the DA, the testing began anew and the Y chromosome was not only identified, but investigators found a soft match in the Combined DNA Index System, or CODIS. The soft hit was to a man named Michael Sumter, someone who had never met Jane and who had never once been mentioned in the original investigation. I am today confident 
that we are able to say that the mystery of who killed Jane Britton has finally been solved. This is the oldest case that the Middlesex District Attorney's Office has been able to bring to a resolution. This year, as a result of numerous forensic tests on DNA samples, collected both those collected at the time of Jane's murder and those collected more recently, we were able to positively identify Michael Sumter as the person responsible for Jane's murder. Michael Sumter had never been convicted of murder, but he had been convicted of sexual assault. A November 1975 headline in the Boston Globe reads, Convict gets 15 to 20 years in rape case. At that point, Sumter was 28. He had already been serving time for a 1972 assault and battery, but had been allowed to take part in a work release program. That meant he was free to leave the prison from 5.30 a.m. to 7.30 p.m., six days a week. And that was a big window of opportunity for Sumter, especially on Saturdays, because on that day, the furniture company for which he worked actually closed at noon meaning that Sumter had a good seven hours to kill before he was expected back at prison. At about 4 p.m. on such a Saturday, he introduced himself as a new neighbor to a 19-year-old woman in a Boston suburb. She politely invited him in for a drink of water. He went in to use her bathroom, then emerged wearing rubber surgical gloves before assaulting her. By the time he was publicly attached to Jane Britton's case, Sumter had been connected to other assaults because of DNA technology and other murders. This is the third homicide Sumter is linked to. Investigators were able to match DNA by testing a surviving male relative. Sumter didn't even know Jane. In one case, a young woman named Ellen Rutchick was found raped and strangled with an electrical cord in 1972 in Back Bay, Massachusetts. 38 years later, in 2010, DNA testing pointed to Sumter. Why Sumter left some victims alive while others were condemned to die, we'll never know. Sumter was dead before anyone knew he had taken a life. He died of cancer in 2001. He was free at the time. He'd been granted a compassionate release into hospice care 13 months before his death. It had been a case that had gone cold for nearly a half a century, but through new DNA testing, the decades-old mystery has now been solved in the death of 23-year-old Jane Britton. After all those years of speculation, of rumors hanging over the heads of the men in Jane's life, it turned out her killing had been random. Investigators believe Sumter entered Britton's apartment through her fourth floor window. The neighbor who had heard noises on the fire escape had been right. And the witness who had spotted a guy running from the building had described someone about the same height and weight Sumter had been at the time. Sumter didn't live in Cambridge when Jane was killed, but he did have ties there. He lived there when he was young, went to first grade in its public school system, had a run-in with Cambridge police while a juvenile, and had a girlfriend who lived there in the late 1960s. In 1967, less than two years before Jane's murder, we've been able to place Sumter working at an establishment on Arrow Street, less than a mile from Jane's apartment. It is not the most satisfying ending to the story, at least not to me. Sumter being the killer means that some of the most tantalizing clues uncovered at the scene were complete misdirects. The red ochre, the repositioned tombstone, 
I mean, the very elements that gave this case staying power, that made it stand out among the 200,000 unsolved murders in this country, apparently meant nothing. For those of us who do a bit of armchair detective work, it's a reminder, the truth is the truth, whether it fits our expectations or not. And sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. And sometimes the red ochre is a red herring. To research this episode, I did the usual archive dig and also read Becky Cooper's fascinating book, We Keep the Dead Close, which was assigned to me by Toby Ball for his Crime Writers on Patreon book club. I also fought off an existential crisis relating too much to Cooper's obsession with this case. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs>